Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And uh, happy holidays, everybody, for this as close as we're going to get to Christmas episode of Cult Fiction. We are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review 1984's Gremlins. Which is one of the closest things we had to a Christmas movie. Yeah, because it's not like Home Alone is going to be on our list. Well, no. Home Alone is a timeless classic. Home Alone 3, maybe. Because I never got over them changing the kid. No. Not acceptable. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In case you missed the movie, Gremlins is the tale of Billy Peltzer and his pet mogwai named Gizmo, gifted to Billy by his failed inventor of a father. But through a series of misadventures and disobeyed rules, a pack of bad mogwai, or gremlins, end up wreaking havoc on the small town, and Billy and Gizmo must save the day. And Andy, mogwai actually means demon or gremlin in Cantonese. And I never, and I love it. <laughs> I never knew that, and that is awesome. I love it. It's so literal and fantastic. It's so literal, fantastic, and it almost like the the fact that it's accurate and not just some made up word almost forgives how horribly racist towards the Chinese this movie is. Right from jump, too. Like, it starts and it's like, oh, this is, oh, no. <laughs> the first five minutes of this movie, the first scene where, where you have Billy's dad by Gizmo feels like it is an entirely separate movie from the rest of Gremlins, from the tone and the setting and like it's doing this whole weird noir thing it's and Mm -hmm. and more than anything it's very gross in a way that only the 80s can be yeah this was released the same year as ghostbusters and it kind of has now granted i haven't seen ghostbusters but what i've in its entirety but what i have seen matches this level of grunge so what i like to imagine is that the first five minutes of this movie in ghostbusters exist in the same universe and then billy's dad goes back to his like little small town and then ghostbuster shit happens in that first town i'm here for it i mean we so clearly this is a world where the supernatural exists if there's going to be little, like, Cantonese demon creatures that, uh, you know, work on their own sort of semi-magical property, I totally believe that there are ghosts. <laughs> and you know what? Unlike weird science, these semi-magical weird properties actually have rules and they stick to them. In fact, rules is like one of the important parts of the thing. I was going to say, even beyond the fact that there are literal main rules, like 
the gremlins operate under a series of you know story rules where they can't just do whatever they want they can't just magic things they're not like they're not little leprechaun things aside from the nature of their physical existence itself and you know the the questionable level of their intelligence they operate as as physical things they're not just snapping and you know causing havoc and destruction they're physically manipulating the world around them and so i absolutely appreciated that more than weird science and (laughs) i'd like to take a second because i just i I think it's so funny you know i i put my hand on the scales enough that we were going to watch a christmas movie but there are like Mm -hmm. three different christmas movies and so i still randomly generated between them and gremlins is what came up gremlins is such a fun companion piece to weird science, I think. And so oh, yeah. the, the the crypt really did have like a little bit of its regular old magic and a little bit of Christmas spirit for us. And the biggest thing that I want to just get out of the way, because this is usually when I talk about it in the beginning of the show, there is a weird connection between like behind the scenes stuff between gremlins and weird science through john hughes and chris columbus what you got for me well so chris columbus wrote gremlins and think of him really as like the john hughes of the 90s and aughts this is a guy of the same caliber who really kind of did the same sort of movies, the same feel of movies. Um, for anyone unfamiliar, uh, Chris Columbus either wrote, directed, or produced Mrs. Doubtfire, Bicentennial Man, the first two Home Alones, which were written by John Hughes, so they like physically actually collaborated, um, The Goonies, the first three Harry Potter movies, the filmed version of Rent, Jingle All the Way, oh my God. Night at the Museum, and The Help. Wow. This is a important enough figure, I think, in the same sense of, of John Hughes. And he, he does the same exact thing where he's a writer in some, a director in some other ones, and a producer. He, he was sort of Hughes's apprentice. And so to lean from one movie directly into the other was really fun for me yeah Yeah. i can see that and i think the two careers kind of have a lot thematically in line as well like the types of movies they make are really common like you could put home alone and bicentennial man and mrs doubtfire and pretty in pink and 16 candles and four keeps on the same shelf yeah, if, if those were, if all those movies were like the summer series for some like cinema chain back when we could go to movie theaters safely. Um, <laughs> in the before time, in the long, long ago. In the long, long ago. If those movies had been like your summer stock, I'd be like, I, I see what you're doing here thematically. Okay, I get it. Um, more than that, and, and you, we touched on it a little bit, I feel like Gremlins is for me personally a better attempt at the same thing weird science did how so it 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 is a family movie 
which, you know, we discussed at length how weird science like kind of build itself to be like kind of a kid's movie, only incredibly gross and sexual and like trying to do both things, but marketing itself more for like the teenage crowd. Gremlins is totally like marketed for that, that younger end of the teenage spectrum and manages to be like, I think a, a family movie that leans into some unfamily uh, movie values specifically with, you know, all of the gremlin gore and killing in the back half of the movie and the, you know, incredible dark stuff that we'll, we'll get involved with, but it manages to like still walk that line better than weird science Maybe this is an 80s thing or maybe this is a John Hughes thing, but like it does the same exact thing where the characters in the movie will be watching a different movie and it is supposed to like directly create a parallel to the audience. So like Billy is watching um, the invasion of the body snatchers at the same moment when the evil gremlins are spawning and so you're, you're supposed to make all these different ties. It did a lot of the same stuff that weird science tried to do. And I would argue did it so much better. Sure. The same, it attempted the same kind of humor too. Yeah. Like a lot of the same jokey, ha ha, we're gonna make puns, but make them in a actually smart way. And this movie succeeded so much better at that. Like, all of the humor in this movie landed. Um, like, there is a there is a moment where Lynn uses kitchen things that her husband has invented to kill the gremlins that her husband has brought in the house. So it's like that setup and payoff that works really nicely. That in Weird Science, it was kind of like, oh, that's that's really random and doesn't make sense. Right. It's uh, it's the fact that, like, you've got the cops in Gremlins who keep getting all these calls about people getting attacked and completely write it off. And then, you know, there's kind of a moment of, of comedy when they finally encounter some Gremlins and they don't know what the hell they're looking at and they get scared and freaked out and, and run away. And it's all it's all played as comedy. And, and that worked in a way that random mutant biker gang except it turns out one of them is a teacher didn't work so much and, and no, you know the last thing is they were both racist and problematic in 80s ways has it got a name dad yeah magwai what magwai i don't know some chinese word that's actually what i was just going to say like and also there was the fact that the one person of color was a bad guy who died and died first. Eh. I never. There was a terrible dad. <laughs> yeah. Hoyt Axton playing Mr. Peltzer is like simultaneously this like really caring and, and sweet dad, but also complete shit ass, horrible father. Mm-hmm. Like the one thing I can say is at least I, I can see him hugging his son. Unlike uh, Wyatt's dad from weird science. Mm-hmm. But no, he's, he's awful. He's a, he's a complete like 
bizarre character where it's like, okay, I, I am a failed inventor. I never stop running this hustle, but also somehow I can drop $200 on this bizarre, weird pet for my son. It, it, I think that action in and of itself really explains the character. He's this like, he's this dude who isn't good at what he does and yet still treats his kid with a level of care that is actually irresponsible when examined. Like, mm-hmm. like the fact they make it a big deal that like the Peltzers are well off enough but it's mostly because billy like works his ass off at the bank for his dad Mm -hmm. to just blow 200 bucks on a christmas gift when um your son already has a perfectly good dog (laughs) (laughs) he doesn't need any more pets he certainly doesn't need this little monster thing that like yeah it makes a cool sound but like you you literally were told, no, you cannot have this thing under any circumstances. You know what the Chinese shopkeeper guy should have done? He should have been like, no, uh, Ma- the Mogwai is mine. Like, that is my pet. That that thing is the equivalent of the Bodega Cat. Aww, Bodega Cats. <laughs> Speaking of aww, so... I didn't see this as a child, so I have zero nostalgia factor. So I was able to watch this without my, you know, my eyes clouded. (laughs) But I will say when, when um, Gizmo comes on the screen, I went, aww, because he's just so cute and little and he's got his little eyes and he says cute stuff. I loved him. He's got his big bat ears, like... I don't I don't know this for a fact, but if you told me that like Gizmo was the inspiration for Furby, I'd believe it in a heartbeat. You know, they do kind of look pretty similar, right? Um, you had mentioned how you'd never seen this before, and I was so happy you got to see this movie. And I'm interested for this conversation because like this is maybe the first one of these movies that we've come across where people love it. People absolutely like adore it because of the rose tinted glasses. And I wouldn't say gremlins is my favorite movie by any stretch, but I very much love the. I don't even know if I'd say love. I very much like this movie. I look back on it fondly and I also saw it for the first time when I was 10. So I'm here I'm here for acknowledging that like as a movie, especially a movie in 2020, it's not actually that good. And I can like see the, see the flaws of it. And Mm -hmm. it has a nostalgic connection to me. Yeah. Whereas it completely doesn't for me. Like I, I never saw this when I was a kid, probably because my parents rightly thought it would give me nightmares. <laughs> sure. So, um, but because I never saw it as a child, it was so funny because you kept saying, it's a Christmas movie, it's a Christmas movie, it's a Christmas movie. And then when I watched it, I was like, this is not a Christmas movie. And then I realized I have pre-written rules for what a Christmas movie is and isn't. 
that I didn't know I had. (laughs) Go on. So, like, the end, it happens at Christmas, but none of the Christmas themes of, like, at at the end, everyone's together and there is hope and it's all about family. Like, at the end, the little boy gets his pet taken away, gets told, like, someday you might be big enough for this pet. You might be a good enough person for it. Your shitty dad sure isn't. And I'm going to take it back with me. Um, and then the family's just, like, left there in the living room, like, okay. And their hands are swinging by their sides and they're idly singing Fahudori. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I... I, I- you're absolutely right. This is so this is a Christmas movie like Die Hard's a Christmas movie. This is I will not have this argument with no, one more no, man in no, my lifetime. No, no, no. I'm not having this argument, I promise. But like <laughs> it, it is it's it's the, a Christmas movie in the same way that Tangerine is a Christmas movie in that it is a movie that takes place on Christmas. And that's sure. it. There's nothing about you know, this that's Christmassy. It's kind of a Christmas movie the same way um, Nightmare Before Christmas is a Christmas movie. And even that, I think Nightmare Before Christmas is a little more Christmassy. I would totally agree that Nightmare Before Christmas is a little more Christmassy. At, at the risk of provoking my my co-host's ire i would pause it to to take it back to home alone like this is a christmas movie like home alone is a christmas movie and bizarrely enough christopher columbus was attached to both of these projects so i don't i will fight you (laughs) home alone is a christmas movie Catherine o'hara did not trot her happy ass from one end of LAX, or I think it's O'Hare, but it's LAX, um, from one end of LAX to the other, just for you to blaspheme and say that she and John Candy and Macaulay Culkin did not make Christmas motherfucking magic for all of us '90s kids. And and you know what? That's fair. I'm not going to have. I'm not going to even try to have that argument because I'm probably going to lose. Um, all that to say, this is a movie that that takes place on Christmas and mm-hmm. didn't need to. Yeah, it could have happened any other time of year. And, and I'm kind of wondering why, like, why bring in the snow? Why make that for yourself? Oh, probably it was pitched as like okay, we can have all these little monsters like take down Santa and it's going to be such a funny little moment. Like for some reason, I, I vaguely remembered like a Christmas tree or uh, not a Christmas tree, a Christmas light kill that totally doesn't happen in the movie. Never even comes close to happening. I, I think, I, I, I think, you pitch it as little monsters on Christmas. And that was a new enough concept that people go, Oh, okay, sure. And, and weirdly enough, I didn't realize this until looking into the movie a little more. This was supposed to be a December, 1994 release. 
and then um, whatever studio it is, Paramount or or whoever, they realized that they didn't have a movie to directly compete with Indiana Jones, which was coming mm-hmm. out in June. So they bumped the entire thing up six months so that Gremlins came out in theaters the same weekend as the first Indiana Jones in the middle of the summer. Christmas movie, middle of summer. Uh, okay. I mean, they figured, hey, we can't let uh, we can't let Paramount. I think Paramount was the ones doing Indiana Jones, as, as it were. Oh, that makes more we sense. We can't let Paramount make all the money this this summer. We have to put out a thing. This movie is the closest we have. Go for it. I warned you, Brad. <laughs> And speaking of, not to jump ahead to, you know, I I usually like to do this at the end. This movie is a financial super hit. So, like, the gamble paid off. so much money. Yeah, exactly. So, with that said, like, we've been talking around the movie a lot, I feel like. Um, We've talked a little bit about how it's not good. Or at least... So, here's my thing. The beginning of this movie isn't really good from like a structural sense. The first scene is out of a completely different movie, complete garbage, totally racist. But even once we get to Billy and Billy's life and like the, everything from, you know, the, the five minute mark to when the evil gremlins get wet is like this, this kind of slow kind of trope salad, kind of boring Hey, here's the thing. Hey, we're very clearly just like painting the fence white until we can uh, pop the gremlins out because we know that's why you came to this movie. You didn't come here to see Zach Gilligan and Phoebe Cates. Although, you know, some people went for Phoebe Cates. Although some people probably saw Phoebe Cates' name above the title and thought about... (laughs) two years back seeing fast times for Ridgemont high and went, Oh, I'm seeing gremlins. <clears throat> and that's all. I'll so say. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, by all means. Um, speaking of the appeal of the movie, I have to say one of my favorite things is that like the gremlins don't kill anyone we like. <laughs> they just terrorize all the right people who were already problems and set up as problems throughout the movie. And they're kind of serving as like a Dewey Sex Machina or sure, if we're going to frame this as a Christmas movie, they kind of act as like a Krampus. That would be the thing if this got remade. It would be like, hey, the gremlins are little Krampus monsters. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I... So that point actually kind of bothers me, but I think there's a good justification for it because I I was sitting here watching this for the first time in a couple of years with a more critical eye, and there are so many secondary villains. There's Mrs. Deagle, who is the evil Mr. Potter 
of this movie, which directly references It's a Wonderful Life, so that you, you realize, oh, okay, she's the evil Grinch woman. Um, and there's Billy's shit-ass, like, direct supervisor at the bank, um, who's played by Judge Reinhold. There's all these... There, there's there's the, the scientist who certainly, um, I don't think, was meant to come across as totally evil, but does some crappy stuff and then dies for it. There's so many bad secondary characters when really the actual villain of the movie is stripe the evil gremlin leader Mm -hmm. and yeah they all serve to actually get some human kills so that no one we like actually dies and i think the justification is it it proves to me at least why this was always intended to be a kids movie sure we're not gonna kill the mom because this is a kids movie we're not going to kill Corey feldman because this is a kids movie and speaking of real quick returning to cult fiction Corey feldman (laughs) in doing a much better job than he did in lost boys like two years later three years later yeah so lost boys was three years later uh this is obviously right before Corey Feldman hit puberty. And I think that fact alone just makes him so much more charming to me. He, he works so much as a child star in a way that he totally doesn't as a teenager in lost boys. I think at least. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think there's some like lingering innocence there that must've been pre cocaine. Yeah, yeah, and and I don't know the timeline, but this is, like, probably this movie's success is what, like, threw him off the wagon, to be completely honest, so. Oh, no. But, yeah, like, there's there's enough charm, there's enough cuteness, there's enough uh, Barney the dog is super cute, Gizmo the Mogwai is super cute, even the scary reptilian gremlins, like, they are funny little clown monsters enough that it's like yeah when they're not actively murdering someone like i'm i'm down for them trashing a bar or um going into a movie theater and packing it and watching snow white for some random reason you know what it is it's like spaceballs logic it's just scary enough but it's spoof scary so you're like uh this is acceptable. The only really dark thing that I was like, what the f is happening is the whole Santa Claus dad died trapped alive in the chimney oh, you mean, situation. You mean the other reason this absolutely is not a Christmas movie? <laughs> I hate Christmas. Christmas makes me angry. It's like straight up the level of moodiness of like electricity makes me crazy wow oh johnny (laughs) (laughs) it's such a it's such a crazy left turn like it's enough for her to be Mm -hmm. like i don't like christmas and to have some some reason and and you know maybe if it's something less traumatic then you do the really contrived thing where like Phoebe Cates learns to love Christmas. But as it is, instead having it be like, no, I hate Christmas because my dad died in the most horrible Christmas-related manner. 
Yup. Like it could have been, I hate Christmas because my dad left on Christmas. Yeah. Or I hate Christmas because in my house, it was always the day that my drunk parents tried to keep their act together, but they were always drunk by like three on oh, spiked eggnog. That's... And I ended up spending the night alone in my room. I love that. Two English degrees. You're welcome, baby. <laughs> the The whole death in a chimney thing was like, this is this is upsetting for the sake of being upsetting. Like it's like the the writers and directors sat around and they're like, hmm, what's the let's think, boys? What's the worst thing we can have happen on Christmas? Well, so hmm. so I actually did some digging and and got an answer for that. Like. So Chris Columbus writes this in and him and uh, the director, Joe Dante, like have a discussion and they agree the entire like thesis statement of the movie is Phoebe Cates's monologue because it's Christmas, but it's dark and horrible. It's Christmas, (laughs) but there are these little monsters running around town, destroying everything and killing people. And it's Christmas. It's bright and happy. And Santa Claus is like being mobbed by a a bunch of little demon things. But it's Christmas. And they were like the only two people, the only two producers who thought this was interesting, thought this was the way to go. Everyone else like in the room hated this. (laughs) Until we get to Mr. Steven Spielberg who I don't think we even really mentioned it, but like produced the movie. And I I actually kind of love this. Like Spielberg hated this random dark character moment, but he like took a step back and went, this isn't my movie. This is Joe Dante's movie written by this other guy. I'm just throwing my, my studio money at it. It's his project. Let him do what he wants. Be it on his head. And, uh, or a couple, blah, 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 let me retake that. Here we are a couple years later talking about, hey, this was the part of the movie that we hated the most. <laughs> and again, complete and utter super hit. So at, 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 at least that moment wasn't enough to like throw people off and not come see Gremlins a second time. And that's how I found out there was no Santa Claus. But there's a sequel. There's Gremlins too. There is a sequel, and I'll go ahead and say, like, I'm I'm putting Gremlins two on the list. Gremlins two is such a fucking insane movie, and it is so like separated from Gremlins one in setting and tone that I think it it needs to be seen in a way that like I don't keep other sequels on here. Gremlins 2 is actually uh, Joe Joe Dante's preferred of the two movies. Listen, I will watch it if just for the Key and Peele um, bit about it, about how everything's in the movie, and then all of these things are actually in the movie. So yeah, I'll watch it just for that. I mean, it's true. Like, so, so for yourself and for anyone else who hasn't seen Gremlins, like there's the scene, or anyone else who hasn't seen Gremlins 2, there's the scene in Gremlins where they've taken over the bar 
And it also kind of happens in the movie theater where like you get all these different close-ups and each gremlin is like doing a thing. There's video game gremlin and there's poker gremlin and there's cheating at poker gremlin who gets shot in the face by Stripe. And there's like all these, every gremlin has a little thing and gremlins two is nothing but that only the things are insane. Yep. So we're keeping it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I look forward to watching. Now is gremlins two like a particular season. Um, like this is a Christmas movie or well, this is supposedly a Christmas movie. (laughs) So gremlins two takes place almost entirely in like, like the 30 rock building. Oh yeah. Like it, it might not, it might not be 30 Rockefeller center, but it's supposed to be like a TV studio that also somehow has a mall in it, but it's all this giant office building. That is, that is what gremlins two takes place in. Interesting. Now I'm just hearing good God lemon, but in like a gizmo voice. So it's like, Good I'm okay with it. I, so I got to say part of the reason I like this movie, um, because even walking away from it, I still like this movie. Like by the time, by the time we actually start to see the monsters, by the time Mm -hmm. we get Billy's mom, uh, doing some home defense courses, which oh my gosh let me study under her please right by the time uh francis lee mccain uh is sticking a gremlin inside a blender and hitting puree and it explodes everywhere this movie has me (laughs) hook line and sinker i love the gremlin gore it is so visceral and real and practical effecty and also like again kids movie this is nuts for a kids movie (laughs) fair this this movie and indiana jones and the temple of doom um are part of the reason why we have the pg-13 rating really truly truly and honestly like because both of those movies were rated pg because it was it was either PG or it was R or it was X, um, and in both of those movies, there is some shit that might ha- send a little kid screaming out of the theater, which I, I guess supposed to had to have happened because afterwards, like the studio rating system, the the board or whoever were like, we need something in the middle. <laughs> we we need a thing where we can like be like hey this isn't R but don't bring your 6 year old. Mhm. And and that's exactly how this went down. That's exactly how that shit went down. That's where that shit goes. Into the PG-13 <laughs> bin. <laughs> kind of like a catch-all bin of just like welp all right, it doesn't go there, and it certainly doesn't go there. Eh, let's just throw it in the dirty laundry and see how it shakes out. Throw it in the PG-13 paw, you know. It's like how every horror movie in, like, between 2000 to 2005 was rated NC-17 because they put more <laughs> blood and more nudity in it and were like, yeah, it's not, it, it's not R because, like... 
probably they don't swear, but there's a shit ton of blood and tits. So this this needs to be something higher than PG thirteen. Fair enough. Um, The other the other reason I like this movie, there are so many that guys in the movie. There are so many people where you're like, hey, hey, I know him. Um, (laughs) And it's it's kind of a treat because, you know, you got Hoyt Axton, Billy Peltzer, uh, Billy Peltzer's dad, rather. um, Glenn Turman, who was the science teacher. But then he's also like he's in the best episode of Scrubs ever made he's he's in a whole bunch of stuff all these guys are in a million different projects but they're never like the stars but you see their face and you recognize it um jonathan banks who is uh the the bald murderer dude from breaking bad he's one of the cops kenneth toby who i don't know anything else kenneth toby has done but i know that face he he was the gas station attendant who got the smokeless smokeless ashtray that totally didn't work um I didn't catch who he was, but Chuck Jones is in the movie. Like, wait, what? Like that Chuck Jones, like, like the animator Chuck Jones, like protege of Mel Blanc guy who drew all of the later Bugs Bunny cartoons. That Chuck Jones is just randomly in this movie. What? Yeah, it's it's so weird. That's so random. It is. I want to know who he was friends with. If it was like John Hughes or Joe Dante or Christopher Columbus, because there's just, I don't understand how else you get him to be doing that. Um, and, and the most that guy of them all uh, was Dick Miller, which is just one of the greatest names ever. Dick Miller, who played Mr. Futterman, the guy constantly like, railing against foreigners the guy who coined the fact that they are gremlins the guy who weirdly enough uh, 35 years after this movie came out is still like a man you can see in your day-to-day life Hmm. um you know i I appreciated (laughs) seeing him even if i don't appreciate his character at all yeah well and he was one of those kills that like i said at the beginning it happens and you're like, oh, I'm all right with that. Like, I feel kind of bad for his wife who also gets killed along with him. But, yeah, you know, him getting killed, not so bad. So I got a little bit of good news and a little bit of bad news. Sure. I straight up do not remember how or if it is addressed. But they are both in the sequel. What the fuck? <laughs> what? They are both in the sequel in, like, prominent enough parts where, like, like Billy's family isn't in the sequel. Billy's parents aren't in the sequel. But, but the Futtermans are and have, like, speaking roles and do things. So something to, I don't like some, something to figure out <laughs> and hopefully find an explanation for. That's okay. Um, Ian Malcolm dies in the Jurassic Park book. And just like there are sequels of the movie, there are sequels of the book. And guess who's back in the second book? Aww. He's just there with, like, no logical reasoning. They don't even address that, like, oh, no, he absolutely died. But here he is again. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Michael Crichton looked at his bed made out of money and 
thought really long and hard about how to justify Ian Malcolm coming back to life. So in your mind, do Michael Crichton and George R. R. Martin just like hang out and have lunch? Oh, probably, but... They're not writing books. Well, Crichton is, or at least he was. I mean, I was about to say, like, George R. R. Martin probably asks to do lunch a whole lot more, and Michael Crichton turns him down a whole bunch, being like, no, no, dude, I, I'm writing a book about killer gorillas. Like, leave me alone. Oh, oh no! <laughs> Also, uh, Michael Crichton died 12 years ago, so that's probably why he hasn't been writing very recently. Oh. <laughs> Shows how much I know. I mean, I didn't know that until this second, so. <laughs> well, uh, we should, we're rambling at this point. We should wrap up. Is this cult? So, again, like, I I feel like it is cult. I feel like there is so much about this movie that like you see it once and if you see it young enough, it totally like sticks in your brain. The fact that it's a Christmas movie in the summer, the fact that if you look at it too hard, uh, you can totally see the strings and it totally stops making sense. Like why can the gremlins touch snow or drink beer and not like create a bunch of more gremlins? Why is it that like the, the whole feed them after midnight, don't feed them after midnight thing is completely subjective. Like what about daylight savings time? Do you feed them at uh, after 11? It, it, it doesn't hold up to any scrutiny. And yet it is so delightful. The biggest thing I can say against it being cult for me personally is it has a sequel, which I'm just putting my my head in the sand and like not even ignoring the fact that it has a sequel. We're going to watch the sequel. And it had a $11 million budget and has a U.S. gross of $153 million. This thing wow. was a license to print money. This thing bought Steven Spielberg a boat. <laughs> Yikes. So, you tell me, is Gremlins cult? Nope. Ah, okay. Expl show your math. <laughs> porque. Explico porque. Um, it's beloved it's not cult so like i feel this is one of those movies that's far too popular to be cult i feel most people have seen it i feel it's not like one of those underground hidden buried gems it's just everyone sees it except for me at some point in their lives and goes oh yeah the movie with the like outsized furbies <laughs> and then accepts it and moves on with their life um and they know it to be a cute children's movie and it's fun. And sure, I guess it's, you know, not the first movie to pop to people's minds, but it isn't actually even that quotable. I really struggled to find a quote too. That's fair. I don't know. I'm not going to argue with you. I think that that's totally fair to say that Gremlins is not cult. A uh, Calling it 
qualifying it as it is beloved i really like that and that really makes a lot of sense to me um because this is like this doesn't have the same sort of lasting fan appeal as ghostbusters but Mm -hmm. it very much is in the same vein as ghostbusters um or even like beetlejuice or Edward Scissorhands or all these other movies that I like would say definitively are not cult. Hmm. So that's fair. You, you could, good job. You showed your math. <laughs> and for someone who is so awful at math, that is, I'm very, very proud of that. I am too. <laughs> you mentioned you struggled to find a quote, but did you find one? I did indeed. Um, and surprise, surprise, it's said by Lynn Peltzer, who is Billy's mother. Um, she's on the gremlin warpath. She comes down to her kitchen. It's crawling with evil gremlins. And at the same point where she is chucking a gremlin in a blender, she goes, get out of my kitchen. And I was like, perfect. I love you. <laughs> That that really is the turning point in the movie. That's the moment where it's it like, okay, we've set the table. Now we can have a buffet of cheesy 80 ridiculousness. And I love it. Um, what about you? Did you find a quote? I did. But real quick, it has to be said. This is the second movie where a monster is thrown in a microwave and then bl- made to blow up important who's your daddy now bitch <laughs> important that we never forget that moment in snakes of a, snakes on a plane <laughs> um so my quote wow. from gremlins was what are they doing they're watching snow white and they love it because that is <laughs> the second most what the hell thing in this movie what's the first what the hell thing uh, the uh, upsetting Chinese noir scene. <laughs> oh yes, true. But actually, like I like the moment with, with them all of them watching Snow White. I don't understand it. I don't know if they're throwing shade at Disney because this was Spielberg. I don't know how they got the rights. If if Spielberg just paid for it and like flicked off Michael Eisner as he was walking away, or. Or if somebody <laughs> lost a bet or just the, the fact that the gremlins adore Snow White and sing along to Hi Ho and are like happy and chilled out until they uh, are all blown up in an explosion. I adore that moment. <laughs> I love that, too. <laughs> Real quick, because there is no other place to put this. I struggled really hard, just like I struggled really hard to find a quote, I struggled really hard to find a reading rack. Sure. Until I made the conclusion that gremlins are just tiny crompuses. Sure. And with my vast, vast young adult literature knowledge, there is a collection of YA short stories um, all themed around the holidays. The brilliant Stephanie Perkins, local Asheville author, um, edited together called My True Love Gave to Me, and it's 12 holiday themed stories. Um, there's a short story within it by the brilliant Holly Black called Krampusloff, 
wherein the narrator accidentally invites an actual Krampus to her Christmas party. She meets him out at like a Krampus themed event and just thinks he's wearing a Krampus costume. And then when he comes to her party, she's like, oh shit, I invited the actual legit real Krampus. Cool. It's dope. Anyway, so that is my reading rec for this episode. Hell yeah. Okay. I love it. Yeah. So you have a reading rec. You managed to find a quote. Do you have an Oscar? By the hair of my chinny chin chin, I did come up with one. And my Oscar goes to most smarm to Steven Spielberg. Sure. Because when a studio exec told Spielberg there were too many gremlins, that it was just too much, Spielberg answered by saying, oh, sure, let's cut them all and call the movie People. And I was like, you sassy bitch, I love you. That is an amazing amount of shade. I'm here for it. I love it. I want to know if that studio exec knew how expensive the gremlins themselves were. Yeah, weren't they like 30,000 bucks a pop? They were 30,000 bucks a pop. And, you know, there's only a select number of animatronics, but there's more than one. It wasn't all just claymation and, like, hand puppets. Um, And those were so well guarded that every single night every member of the crew and and cast had to have their cars like searched to make sure that they weren't stealing a life-size gremlin animatronic so (laughs) yeah if i had put that much into it like i would be putting them all up in my movie too yeah speaking of which that kind of directly leads us into your oscar what was your oscar (laughs) It does, and I love it. I love my Oscar so much. Um, This is one of my favorite Oscars I've ever had. My Oscar for Gremlins goes for Best Failed Screen Test. Because originally, the studio was going to do something that was much cheaper than 30 to 40 grand animatronics. They were going to have the Gremlins played by monkeys. (laughs) i kind of want that because nothing gets worse with monkeys things only get better however (laughs) they uh they were going to use spider monkeys for the gremlins and they were all set to do this until they tested out the idea they had a spider monkey in the director's office and as soon as they stuck a gremlin mask on it, the monkey rightly began freaking out and started trashing <laughs> and shitting all over Joe Dante's office. <laughs> and I, I like that the spider monkey loses his mind. Like the spider monkey understands that something is wrong. It's not meant to wear a mask. It's not people. It's a spider monkey and just starts defecating all over the place and screaming and making a giant mess. I want to watch that moment. Like I want a time machine to be maybe just outside the office. So I don't get spider monkey shit. Flung at me. But I want to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god oh man <sighs> well
Well, the last thing we do, or the second to last thing we do, rather, on every episode of Cult Fiction, is uh, we play our favorite game, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yes, we do. Now, Andy, I didn't put down uh, initials Uh, because I I was trying to be tricky. (laughs) Oh, but, like, okay, so this one is, this one is delightful. Do you want to just go on three? One, two, three. Francis Lee McCain. Francis Lee McCain was is in Footloose. Yup. She's so she went. Oh, sorry. She's Ren McCormick's <laughs> mom. Like. Yup. She was Ethel in Footloose. She was a badass mom in Footloose, and she's a badass mom in this movie. Ethel Lee McCain is just a badass mom. Francis Lee McCain. Yeah. Yes, that's what I said. Francis Lee McCain. <laughs> Ethel Lee McCain, same thing. Francis, Ethel, I get it. I am so absolutely delighted. I think this is the first uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon that directly ties into Footloose. It makes me so happy for no good reason. Well, Footloose is Alex's favorite movie, so maybe that's why? I think that's why. I think just, like, the overage of Bacon, like... Like I'm gonna, yes. I'm gonna have to play more of the song in honor of this historic moment in our podcast. And with that, so. Then the actual last thing we do on every episode of Cult Fiction is we uh, roll the dice with a random number generator and pick our next movie. And I can't think of anything that is like New Year's Day themed. So I'm going to go back to opening up the entire uh, Cult Fiction list, which is still a whopping 304 movies. Our next movie is going to be... Huh. Okay. We're going back to vampires. Our next movie on cult fiction is Abel Ferrara's The Addiction, which is a 1995 vampire movie that I have never heard of, but I think Nicolas Cage. Nope. Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken vampire movie. Let's see here. Um, a New York philosophy grad student turns into a vampire after getting bitten by one and then tries to come to terms with her new lifestyle and frequent craving for human blood. Dun, dun, dun. And I think this came out like a year after the hunger. So I, I'm absolutely here for this, like this moment we had where we were examining the vampire condition. I'm, I'm excited for this. Well, I'm trying to remember, was it the hunger that led us to, the hunger led us to something else, which led us to Gremlins. So, isn't exactly like a Control-Z situation, but. I think I think we had a little 80s break, because yeah, it, we, we watched The Hunger, also, uh, I totally had the wrong decade. The Hunger came out in 1983. Um, but we watched The Hunger, we watched Weird Science, we watched Gremlins, and now we're watching another vampire movie. Dope. I'm so and excited. I think, 
So this is weird. Like every third, every third movie we've seen since Lost Boys is a vampire movie. I'm here for it. Interesting. All right. You can watch The Addiction on. It's on Prime. <laughs> Very good. All right, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we are like vampires and gotta drink blood. Because Christopher Walken's all I got. <laughs> As we watch... 1995's The Addiction. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. May your days be merry and bright And may all your Christmases be wise